Hello, and welcome to Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, the story behind the Sandemanians, a religious order that went through Connecticut in the 17 and 1800s. Sandemanians are a strange little group. That's my guest for this episode, Danbury historian Bill Devlin, an expert not only on Danbury history, but it turns out on the Sandemanians as well. They uh, were a little eccentric. <laughs> eccentric may be an understatement. They were also known as the Kissites. Well, for 200 years, Sandemanians were found all over the eastern U.S., but their end came in Danbury, Connecticut. Stay tuned for Hippies, Zealots, or Entrepreneurs, the Odd Sandemanian Religion. There was a religious order founded in Europe in the 1700s, which drew congregants from around the world. It's not one of the traditional names you're familiar with. Lutheran, Congregationalist, Presbyterian, Catholic, Episcopalian, Baptist, Methodist, Quaker, just to name a few. It's one of the larger religious orders you've probably never heard of before. Yet its believers spanned Europe and the young United States, starting when we were just colonies before the Revolutionary War. The story behind the Sandemanians is fascinating. It was among the religious orders that cropped up in the 1700s, which challenged all the other established religious orders of the day. It combined aspects of a hippie commune culture with a strict religious order. That seems like a dichotomy, I know, but it really was that way. And as you'll hear, the religious order, with congregations in several significant Connecticut towns, came to its end in Danbury about 200 years after it started. Well, this story begins in Scotland. The Reverend John Glass ministered there. He was rather radical in his way of thinking at the time. He was born in 1695, and he'd lived to be nearly 80, an age not often achieved in those years before conventional medicine took hold. He outlived all 15 of his children. Well, he was born into a religious family. His father was a minister. He also married into a prominent religious family. His father-in-law was a senior leader of the Church of Scotland. The Church of Scotland was Presbyterian, a Protestant religion that didn't follow the edicts of either the Catholic Church out of Rome or the Church of England in London. Glass felt that the Presbyterians and other sects were controlled too much by human councils and synods. He thought the simple order of the New Testament, as he viewed it, was all you needed. In Christianity, the concept of election is pivotal. It's the basis for how you achieve eternal life in heaven. Some Christians believe that God's choosing of a particular person to enter heaven is conditional on a person's faith and how they worship. Others feel that the faith you follow is not a condition for eternal afterlife. Bill Devlin is an expert on Danbury history and as well on the Sandemanians. He says that John Glass was one of those who held an unconditional view. Glass believed that there is no faith experience necessary. All you had to do was say that you were saved and uh, you, you know, Jesus was your savior and you're, you were good. Glass's view was definitely outside the mainstream learnings of the Church of Scotland. Bill says everything that Glass believed was based on a single fundamental principle. Anything that was in the Bible was permissible 
But if it wasn't in the Bible, you couldn't do it. For example... They were not allowed to play cards, but they could dance and sing. After all, card playing was never mentioned in the Bible, although dancing and singing clearly were. Bill says that the singing and dancing part used to play out in public, and visiting clergy who came to observe left some rather critical commentary in their personal diaries. Describing how ridiculous they looked because they were out in the green singing and having a, you know, what looked like a bunch of college kids, you know, having a rant out there. On their day off from work each week on the Sabbath, Bill says there was a formulaic two-part approach to the Sandemanian service. A couple hours of somebody um, in the congregation reading from the scripture and then, you know, expounding on it. And then uh, there would be a break and there would be this communal meal. Bill says that communal meal was an important part of the service. And that was their love feast. And the communal meal, um, they passed around the kiss of peace. And uh, people started calling them the Kissites for that. For that, Yes, the Kissites were the way Sandemanians were referred to by non-Sandemanians. They were viewed as eccentric, as Bill said in the introduction. Despite these almost hippie-like aspects to this seemingly fun religion, Bill says there was a more draconian side to it. Within the group, there was like this consensus rule. So everybody had to agree on something. You could dissent, but if you dissent more than once, more than twice, I believe, you were, you were excommunicated. And as Bill aptly notes, that's not a way to build a long-term sustainable congregation. Number one, this was a small group to begin with, you know, 50 at the most. And you're throwing people out. <laughs> your, your prospects are not great. As Glass was building his movement in Scotland in the early going, he had a lot of difficulty promoting his views. He had a small, tight-knit group of followers, but the philosophy wasn't expanding far and wide beyond that. Well, enter his son-in-law, Robert Sandeman. Sandeman married Reverend Glass's daughter, Catherine. In time, it would be Sandeman who would take Glass's principles and get them to a wider audience. Bill, in fact, sees a close parallel between Glass and Sandeman, similar to the German philosophers Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, the men behind the start of socialism. Karl Marx was the idea guy, and Engels was the guy with the money who, who like popularized all this, made the, made the little sayings and all that kind of thing. Well, Sandeman was kind of like that. He was the guy who publicized Glass's teachings. Sandeman was so good at pushing these new concepts and drawing converts that the name of the religious order eventually changed from the Glassites to the Sandemanians. Sandeman was sort of the guy who put it all together into a package that people could use, and he went around spreading the word. Although the nickname of Kissites did stick. Bill says Sandeman had fairly quick success. There were Sandemanian congregations in England, um, and then he attracted some attention in America. People ministers especially got interested in this. One of the principles that Sandeman highlighted received a very sympathetic ear in the colonies. One of the things they believed in was separation of church and state. This was pretty controversial in the day. So, so some of the ministers were interested in that. After all, the original settlers from England had fled state-sponsored religion in the form of the Church of England. One of the ministers in the colonies who had caught wind of these teachings and found that they struck a chord with him was the minister of Danbury's largest church, the Congregational Church. Ebenezer Russell White led the Congregationalists at that time. 
Now, there were no newspapers in Danbury in the mid-1700s, so when Reverend White stood in the pulpit and spoke every Sunday, it was the most widely listened to commentary in Danbury in that day. Well, when the good reverend started blending in a couple of Robert Sandeman's ideas within his own sermons, some Danburians started to get uncomfortable. This was straying off course from the principles of the Congregational Church. In fact, when White invited Sandeman to visit, Sandeman took him up on it. And in fact, he toured a large portion of the colonies preaching wherever he went. Well, throughout western Connecticut and elsewhere in the states, Sandeman's congregations started to pop up. There were congregations in Woodbury and Newtown and New Haven. There were several up and down the coast. There's one in Massachusetts. There's one in Nova Scotia. It, it was a growing movement. When Sandeman got to Danbury, he stayed quite a while. In fact, too long for the local authorities to deal with. Town authorities brought him up on charges of staying too long because they had an anti-vagrancy ordinance <laughs> that anybody who was someplace for over a month was against, it was against the law. You couldn't stay there unless you were going to actually live there. But Bill says Sandeman made an interesting argument in court when he went to face the charges. Sandeman argued successfully in court, and Danbury this is, that the ordinance wasn't made for people like him, and he was actually able to get off, and he ended up dying in Danbury. He's actually buried there. Sandeman is buried in the historic Worcester Street Cemetery near Danbury's Main Street, right behind the old jail. In those days, the Congregationalists ran all aspects of Connecticut life, not just religion, but government, tax collections, schooling, and cultural activities. Reverend White was entrusted with the Congregationalist flock in Danbury, and he was clearly torn over his own beliefs. He liked a lot of what he heard from Sandeman, except for one key point. One of the things that, that he believed in that White could not stomach was the fact that you didn't have to have a trained clergy. Anybody could do the, the readings from the Bible, and that was fine. Back in the 1600s, the Congregational Church had coalesced around a certain group of principles called the Saybrook Platform. When Reverend White withdrew Danbury's church from that platform, well, his congregation split. White's future would be debated around town. There were pamphlets published for and against Reverend White, and some defending him, you know, some, some indicting him. And he eventually was tossed out of the Congregational Church. So White started a new church called the New Danbury Church. Roughly half the congregation followed him to this new church, and the other half stayed behind. Now, still others who missed their old church in England started Danbury's St. James Episcopal Church, the closest thing to the Church of England in the colonies. The shocking part was that White's own son, Joseph Moss White, actually split from his father and started the Sandemanian Church in Danbury. All of these changes came in a relatively short and compressed time period in the mid-1700s while Connecticut was still a colony. Well, by the time the Revolutionary War rolled around, Robert Sandeman had passed away. Now, Bill says, though, that importantly, the church was by then grounded to survive even without him. It's not like everybody was simply attracted to Sandeman the man. And they weren't a cult because the, the ideas were the important things, not, not the charismatic leaders. In fact, Bill says they were a very cohesive organization. They were very much a tight community. And you saw over time there's a lot of intermarriage within the group. But as the Revolutionary War broke out, one fundamental belief in the church caused some long-term problems for the group. They believed in 
Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So you don't get involved, you don't challenge civil authority. And that's precisely what the Revolutionary War was all about, challenging civil authority. The Sandemanian policy translated to stay neutral during the war, backing neither the British nor the Patriots. And that landed them in a lot of hot water, especially with the Patriots who were fighting an uphill battle against the British for independence. The Sandemanians, therefore, were shunned and ostracized, with many Patriots looking down on them as being disloyal. They were under a lot of pressure in many of the places where they had uh, congregations. And a lot of the congregations after the Revolution dwindled. They were actually actively persecuted in the Revolution. They were drawn up on, uh, brought in front of committees of safety and, uh, you know, questioned. Um, one guy was shot at. And after the war, the Sandemanian congregations began to fold everywhere where they had been started. Bill says, though, there was one notable exception. Danbury survives. Danbury and Danbury attracts people from these other congregations. And some of them are very significant, very entrepreneurial type folks. The importance of this for shaping Danbury's future can't be overstated. A lot of big names and entrepreneurs came to Danbury from New Haven or Fairfield. Among them was Nathaniel Bishop. He was founder of the comb manufacturing industry. That was the main rival to Hatting in Danbury for the early years of both of those industries. Now, he was from New Haven and actually led the Danbury Sandemanian branch for a bit. Also the Tweedy family. They ran the biggest hat factory in America in the 1850s. And each of their generations, while the Sandemanian religion existed, they had a family member in the church. Another big name was Oliver Burr. He was from Fairfield. He was a third cousin of the infamous Aaron Burr. Burr was the third vice president of the U.S., but he went down as famous for killing Alexander Hamilton in a duel in 1804. Well, Oliver Burr had, in fact, at one time been his third cousin's legal guardian. Oliver Burr had business connections throughout New York City, and he teamed up with the grandson of the famous Danbury Reverend White, also named Ebenezer White, and together they opened the first major hat factory in Danbury, the Burr and White Factory. It was a facility that overshadowed the many small mom-and-pop hat outlets that were sprinkled around Danbury. These were small operations. They were, you know, two or three people turning out a few hats. What Burr and White did was they got an English English master hatter in to teach people how to do it, and they started some mass production. So they were doing, you know, our other shops are doing a couple of hundred hats a year. They're doing thousands. They also became famous because not only were they the first to industrialize hat manufacturing, but they opened the first hat warehouse in New York City to spur the sale of hats there. Why were the Sandemanians so successful in hat and comb making? Bill says that in those days, in particular, business practices relied on personal connections and honesty. From little hints and accounts that we have, we know that the Sandemanians were considered to be, you know, very scrupulously honest. So they were trusted. So they were, therefore, you know, that was kind of a a plus for them in, in doing business. While they may have been prominent and successful businessmen, none became particularly famous. But Bill says that one family's offspring did become quite famous. Charles Ives, the composer, is a descendant of Joseph Moss White, who was the original Sandemanian congregation 
founder. Well, alas, Oliver Burr's ambition began a downward slide in the last remaining Sandmanian congregation in the U.S. Both he and Ebenezer White owned real estate on Main Street. Now, at that time, Main Street at the corner of modern-day White and Elm Streets looked very different. The buildings that are there today, of course, weren't there then. It was just a grassy hillside that rose up from Main Street. Now, if you know where the old, original News Times building was on Main Street and where the original library building was at the corner of Main and Library Place, well, that's the general area where the Sandemanians built their meeting house and communal meal house. Ebenezer White's house was where the old library building is today, and the walkway next to the old News Times building, the one with the red, rounded mound on top, led to where Oliver Burr built his home. When he decides to build this house, this creates a problem in the group because the group believes that they weren't a socialistic group, but they believe that, according to the Bible, if you made extra money, you were not supposed to be accumulating wealth in this world. You were supposed to be using it for the benefit of the lesser people in the group, spreading it around. The idea of somebody actually building a nice house right on Main Street was you know, frowned on. Now, even though Burr offered his house to the Sandmanians, it wasn't until after his death that the house was converted. But the damage had been done. What was left of the last Sandmanian congregation was in crisis. The group split on account of that. So there was a big split then. And there was another big split in the early 1800s. And then, you know, gradually <laughs> bad things started happening. The males started dying off. So if the women have no role... <laughs> You have a congregation of almost entirely of women, or all women. There was a, that's kind of how they eventually died off in the late 1800s. Well, as an interesting footnote to history, the Sandemanians did make a big change in their otherwise intractable set of rules. They allowed women to take a more active role. As Bill said, the congregation had grown to be predominantly female, so it was a bit of a necessity. When the last service was held in Danbury in 1899, it was finally a woman who was at the helm. Well, that's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I want to thank my guest for this episode, Bill Devlin, expert on both Danbury history and the Sandemanian religious sect. Please follow me on my main podcast website, amazingtalesct.podbean.com. Also, in between episodes, you can check out my Facebook page at Amazing Tales CT. That's where I place photos supplementing my podcasts. Plus, I'd love hearing from you there. And you can send me an idea of a story you'd like me to look into. If you liked what you heard, spread the word with your family and friends. See you next time here on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC.